Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. And today I'd like to start out by reminding you that there is an event coming up in Dallas, September 27th, 28th, and it is the next Wealth Formula Meetup. And uh, this is going to be a good, good time for those of you who came in uh, last spring in Scottsdale. Everybody loved it. It was a you know, it was a two-day event, exactly like the way we're doing it this time. Cocktail party the night before, and then the day of the event, we have a bunch of speakers, uh, and um, and then we go on a bus tour, and then we have more cocktails. But the biggest thing about it is not the star-studded cast of speakers, which we have, including Tom Wheelwright and Doug Ludmel and a few others, but the ability for you to once and for all become a part of the living, breathing human com uh, community of Wealth Formula, uh, which is, you know, second to none, really, when it comes to the podcast community. What you, what you find is that this group, and I'm not, okay, I'm a little biased, but I will tell you without question, I've been to a lot of events, a lot of podcast events, a lot of these kind of communities and real estate people, et cetera. But this is the single highest quality group of individuals that you will ever meet in one of these settings. Um, you know, lots of really successful people. I'm not just saying successful investors. I'm talking about people who are successful in their own careers, you know, doing medicine, business, real estate, you name it. But uh, I, I definitely would love to see you come out. This is a limited size event. We keep them very small because we want them to be intimate. We don't want them to become like this gigantic, you know, horrible uh, thing where it's, you know, really impersonal. So we're capping at only 100 people again. Check it out, wealthformulaevents.com. Again, that's wealthformulaevents.com. Now, if you can't make the live event, there is Wealth Formula Network. And Wealth Formula Network is another thing you got to consider. Wealth Formula Network is basically our private online community. And similarly, it starts with a course uh, with uh, folks like Ken McElroy uh, and Tom Wheelwright, who are rich dad advisors in real estate and tax, respectively. We've got tons of things on asset protection, personal finance, insurance, etc. Things like that that give you the foundation. And then you move on and you join our private group on Facebook, on uh, our portal, uh, and probably the most 
popular aspect is the bi-weekly mastermind video Zoom calls, which we get to see each other and talk. It's a really good time. People who are in it love it. Again, check that out at wealthformularoadmap.com. Now, as far as today's show, I want to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm candid with you. You know, I'm not a guy who's only only had successes, particularly as an entrepreneur. Uh, I've had failures, and, and that's, you know, it's par for the course when it comes to uh, business and in life for that matter, right? So let me tell you about another one of my failures, if I haven't bored you already with all my other failures. So a few years ago, I'd say maybe five years ago, I was listening to a well-known podcast and I heard this concept. I heard this guy talking about turning single-family homes into elderly care facilities. Well, I got pretty interested in this idea, so I decided to actually fly out to Phoenix to go check out this course live, and I even dragged out another entrepreneur buddy of mine, and we all we both went, and in short, we both got sold on the concept, and I mean sold very, very, uh, very quickly, and the next thing you know, we were dropping, you know, tens of thousands of dollars on coaching and mentorship programs. You know what I'm talking about. You've bought into things like this before. I bet you I bet you if you think about it, you have. I mean, you go to these things and then you're in front of good marketers. I'm not saying they're bad people, but they're good marketers that uh, know that people respond to fear and greed. And this particular particular option uh, had elements of both, right? So now I'm not saying that this was a program that I signed up for that was completely worthless. It was not. I did learn a lot, and I believe that had things gone another way, uh, that I could have been successful, and uh, I would have had a small business on my hands that might have been worth keeping. However, a lot of things got in the way of that. First of all, I bought a house uh, that was clearly zoned for such conversion, right? Now, this was clearly, no one ever doubted the the ability, at least according to the law, for me to convert a house into an elderly uh, facility. But uh, it was clear upon me buying this and starting to you know, get involved with this that the neighbors were not going to have any part of it. Now, I know you're thinking, you're thinking, wait a second, Buck, if you're zoned for it, you can do whatever you want, right? Well, not really. That's where the theoretical and the real world of local real estate and politics collide, and one of them invariably loses guess one. In short, the neighbors were you know, making me jump through all sorts of hoops that they knew would be difficult, time-consuming, and most importantly, in my case, expensive. You know, let me just give you an example. So one of the things they said is, well, you could do this, but we're concerned about the traffic in the area. So we want to do a traffic feasibility study on this corner. And that alone was going to cost me tens of thousands of dollars. So in the end, I'm thinking to myself, what have I gotten myself into? And I asked my business attorney, who I uh, trust very much, I said, can they really stop me? And he said, no, but they can make you wish you had never started. And so I got the point. So sometimes you got to quit, quit while you're behind and, you know, cut your losses. Now, I understand that. Um, now, I understand one thing that's important to understand the, the context of this is that I was already making a lot of money doing things that were not nearly as hard for me and that didn't have a bunch of people, you know, telling me not to do things in their yard and, and, and their backyard and, and, um, 
And I wasn't dealing with a bunch of elderly people and all the issues related to that. So I decided at this point, you know what? I'm just going to sell this house. I haven't lost that much money and um, I can sell it. I actually got a good deal on it. I just sell it and maybe I'll even make a few bucks. So a couple weeks into that process of putting it on the market, the realtor called me up and let me know that he'd taken a potential buyer to the property And when he got there, there was a bunch of water everywhere. As it turned out, there was a pipe that had burst and the realtor could already smell the mold. Fortunately, at least the way I was thinking about it, I had insurance and it, you know, it was covering me for just about everything. So we went and we got our contractor, we got permits, but things were going unusually slow right? So literally a year later, the contractor had made very little progress other than to tear the thing apart, but he wasn't for some reason putting the thing back together. And it started to get really ridiculous because there was all sorts of excuses coming from this guy that made absolutely no sense. And so, you know what? I put my finger on his neck and eventually I put my foot on his neck, not on my finger. I put my foot on his neck and eventually the guy confessed that he had taken the money and bought a couple of other houses to flip. Now, what I'm saying, let me just let let that sink in. The guy basically took money from insurance that he was supposed to put back together my house. He took that, diverted it into his own funds, figured, you know what, I can make my profit even more by just you know flipping a couple houses. He won't even notice the difference because I do this all the time and make more money with somebody else's money. Anyway, um, boy, can you believe that? I, you know, unbelievable. So when I find out about this and I basically am starting to threaten him, right? So then he agrees to return the money to avoid litigation. Uh, and frankly, I didn't want to get into litigation because, you know, in those situations, nobody ever wins except for the attorneys. And the next thing you know, uh, he comes back to me and says, you know what? I actually didn't say anything like that to you at all. I I didn't charge, you know, this is just what it cost me to tear everything down and you were underfunding me. And so I'm not paying you anything. So, well, guess what? So now we're off to the legal races. And if you want to know how this thing ends, talk to me next time at the event and I'll tell you. But suffice it to say that this didn't end up the way I wanted to. And I probably lost at the end of the day, 250 grand uh, with nothing to show for it. Now, all this happened. And I will tell you that I'm not blaming this coaching program, this mentorship program for it. This service provided me was reasonable. Had you know, and had circumstances uh, been different, I might have had a profitable little business. Now, little is the operative word here because you know there was a valuable lesson here. Because no matter how you cut it what I was embarking on was an extremely high risk endeavor. And you might say, no, it's not really that high risk. It's like a single family home and, you know, there's elderly people and the demographics right for it. But if I didn't just tell you that everything blew up, I mean, listen, at the end of the day, this is not, I mean, this was surprising, but this is high risk stuff, right? I was doing something here that had not been done in the Chicago suburbs before. It involved significant investment in real estate, and there was, uh, you know, neighbors involved. There was local politics involved. And um, you know what? There's just an enormous number of moving parts, which I couldn't have predicted necessarily. But in retrospect, I think, well, yeah, of course, you know? So for a guy 
who'd already had some highly profitable businesses at the time, did it make sense for me to sort of jump on this bandwagon? In retrospect, absolutely not. Even had things turned out okay, the reward simply was not high enough for the risk involved, right? Understand, I am a serial entrepreneur and I've had successful multiple, you know, startups, uh, some of them with seven and eight figure yearly revenues, but I've also failed on some of them. And that's why when it comes to my entrepreneurial activity, I never accept outside money. I never take money from investors. I had people ask me about this before, but I'm really only willing to take investors on things that are boring and safe and things like, you know, multifamily real estate and self-storage and things like that. So anyway, losing money in that venture, uh, with this thing was not a big hit to me. It didn't take me down, didn't make me, you know, uh, lose everything I have. Um, you know, I've lost a lot more money in other efforts, which I have told you about in the past. But what bothered me about was that the upside was so limited. And what I mean by that is if you look at it, so, you know, when you hear about things like 30% cash on cash and projects, that sounds pretty good to a real estate investor. But it's not that big of a deal for a business startup. I mean, you should really expect that kind of return from buying an established business, much less a startup, right? What I mean by that is if you're buying a, a business that has like been around for five, six years, 10 years, whatever, from a mom and pop, chances are you're going to pay about two to three times valuation, uh, uh, two or three times a profit for that. And what that means is if you bought the thing uh, cash, you would basically be getting, you know, about 30% cash on cash. I mean, that's literally a cap rate of like 30, right? So that's for an established business. But how about for a startup, right? Well, let me give you a reference point. So for my successful startups, returns have been about four to 500%. And um, the bottom line is for this one, in retrospect, the best case scenario for, was for about 30% cash on cash. And it came along with lack of scalability, a ton of work and responsibility. You know, it's, it's really a big deal taking care of the elderly. I don't care what you say in terms of the marketing piece of this. Bottom line is I chalk this experience up as a mistake. Now, don't get me wrong, though. I mean, I'm not saying that there are not people who are not out there doing this successfully, but I will say that they probably could make more money doing something for less work, frankly. Now, that's my opinion. Uh, it's based on my experience. However, others have had, you know, um, others have had other experiences uh, than mine, and they're doing pretty well. Uh, and what I find is that most of the people who are doing well in this area are successful in part because they really care about what they're doing, and they're not just seeing this through the lens of profit. And that is a problem when something's marketed like this. It's really just focusing on, you know, the profit aspect of it. And that's what most people see, because frankly, you've all got, you know, full-time jobs, you've got other things going on. If you want to do this, it has to be a full-time endeavor. There's really no other way to do it in my view. Now, one of the guys who's doing just that is a low hornbuckle. Uh, and if you want to explore senior living as something you might want to get exposure to, you're going to want to listen to today's interview with Low. Uh, he is going to talk about his experience, what he's doing. And, uh, you you know, I'm not going to, in this interview, I got to say, I was not easy on Low because I already have sort of a, a negative experience uh, to talk about. So, you know, I never let things hang hang back and I'm, I'm trying not to, you know, just throw softballs at people. So I was pretty 
no, it was pretty rough on Lowe. And he was a good sport about it and had a lot of good answers. So when we come back, listen to this interview with Lowe Hornbuckle. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Mr. Low Hornbuckle. He is the CEO and founder of Sage Oak Assisted Living and Memory Care, founded in 2015. And he focuses on, or at least uh, Sage Oak focuses on, boutique assisted living uh, with five locations and a total of 40 beds. And he also has a couple of ground-up developments in the works. He is uh, 37 years old and lives in Dallas, Texas, Hello, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Thank you for having me, Buck. How are you today? I'm good, man. I mean, you and I, um, I mean, you are on Facebook a lot, you know, uh, and so I uh, I find your feeds pretty entertaining. So, uh, you know, uh, you know, I have sort of unfollowed probably about 90% of people on there, but frequently uh, I get I get caught up in the low horn buckle stream. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I kind of like, I think there's a lot of people that just enjoy the fact that I try to be authentic online and there's a lot of fake people online and I, and the same person offline and online. So actually I'm probably more reserved online if you can believe it. So, so. yeah, well, that's, uh, that's interesting. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. Yeah. I don't really have a social media, um, body double either. Um, <clears throat> and, and find myself saying things that are sometimes controversial or, or whatever, um, or coming coming across very uh, abruptly. <laughs> Not you, no, no, no way. <laughs> anyway, so um, so anyway, yeah, we so we've been going back and forth on social media, and I kind of got curious about what your story was, and it looks like you know, I mean, you're you're involved with this, uh, you're involved with an area that we don't talk much about on the show for um, uh, these days. We have in the past, but. Um, you got interested uh, in assisted living. So, what's a um, guy who's you know back in 2015? You have been what 33 years old. So, what's a young buck like you uh, interested in assisted living for? What's what's the what's the idea? What got you into it? 
Yeah. So first thing, when he says young buck, I assume he means uh, a deer reference and not, not that I'm the spitting image of him as a young man. Um, but no, I think uh, the reality is, is that a couple of things, I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of consider myself a social capitalist. So I try to, I try to do things that I have personal connection to and that I feel good about, but also have a profit motive behind it. Um, and I think sometimes it's easy to get caught up in one or the other. And it's always nice when you can find a, a deal that has both. So I got into assisted living um, because I thought it was a great business opportunity. Uh, however, uh, I had a father that went through a bad experience on hospice. And that was when I got into the business, all those emotions and feelings kind of started flooding back. And I kind of realized that this is kind of my opportunity to do something positive in the face of something that was negative for me and my family. And so that's really kind of what I think kind of kept me in the business. And um, I kind of have a very different background from most people in the space. So it kind of allowed me to kind of bring an outsider's approach. And that's what I think has kind of allowed me to grow relatively quickly is that I look at the, I look at the problems in the business from a different set of eyes. And so that's been kind of helpful. So I've got to be careful that I don't uh, relinquish my outsider status by being too much of an insider. Yeah. Like every, uh, every presidential election, right? Yeah, that's one one angle. Hopefully, uh, hopefully, I'm more qualified than any of them, but we'll see. So, you know, this is an area actually um, assisted living that I personally looked back a few years ago, and you know, um, for me, uh, on the surface, it was very attractive. Um, but I found you know the, some bumps along the way, and I want to I want to talk to you about those because obviously, you know, you got four uh, or five locations here, and, and you're doing pretty well. Um, one of the issues that kind of spooked me a little bit was in talking to some of the banks involved on the lending side, um, particularly Chase, which I did a, I do a lot of work with. Um, they simply were not interested in lending money uh, at the time because despite the demographic uh, crunch that we're hearing about coming, uh, they were finding lots of failures in this area, in part because they said, well, maybe there's a demographic crunch coming, but currently we these places, there's, there's just not the need to continue to build and create more facilities. I'm not saying it's true or not. I want you to respond to that. Uh, actually, Chase is, uh, is a lender on, uh, all, at one point, all five of the facilities. We refinanced a couple of them. Um, so assisted living is probably one of the more unique uh, sort of real estate plays and that's very, very underwritten on the operator. And so if you presented a package with an operator that they believed in, they might've had a different answer. Um, I, know, I know enough about your business model to know that a lot of times you're, you're, you're picking a jockey as a partner, you're picking a, an operator as a partner, you know, you're, 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 you're JVing with an operator. So if you pitch them the concept without an operator, for them, it's too abstract Right. Um, because a lender oftentimes says, we don't want to take this over, right? Banks don't want to take over assisted living facilities. Sure. So they're betting on the operator more than anything else. Yeah. Um, so I found, I, I found pretty good success in getting stuff underwritten. Um, but <clears throat> a lot of that's just because I've spent the time to speak the talk, to, to be able to speak. To, at the, one of the things I've really tried to get good at is being able to talk to the average person who doesn't understand assisted living, like, say, a banker. Mm-hmm. And be able to talk to them in a way where they can understand what it is that we're doing, how it's unique, kind of where the industry's headed. Mm-hmm. I think you're spot on with the demographics. Um, I always make a joke if I can make it through an entire podcast without saying the phrase baby boomer that I should win a prize. I usually do, except in this segment here where I reference that I'm not going to say it because it doesn't really matter, right? Because the average baby boomer, I mean, the average person in assisted living is 87. The oldest baby boomer is 74. 
So on average, they're not going to interact with the product for 10 or 13 years. So for, for my perspective, um, they're just now starting to get into independent living. My business model is focused on dementia care and assisted living, uh, meaning that people maybe aren't choosing us because they want to. They're choosing us because they have, they have to get care somewhere. And so because of that, um, you know, we're focused on serving the current, current needs. And one of the best ways you can do that is be unique. Um, I would agree with Chase that it's very easy to make yourself into a commodity in this space. Um, and so it's all about the operator, the story they're telling, and kind of what, uh, what they're going to be doing in the space that's going to set, set them apart. And that's, that's been true for us as well. Anytime we've tried to you know, work inside of a commodity, it's not a commodity business, right? It's a personal business. One of the things and, that you mentioned there that I think is also really important because when I was doing this, and at the end of the day, I, I didn't stop. This thing, for me, I had you know uh, essentially one of these homes. I thought I'd give it a try. Um, bought a house and it didn't fail because of the financing part at the end, um, you know, the SBA was very interested in it, but what, what the reason it ended up failing, uh, was a situation quite simply that we had a bunch of not in my backyard people and we yep. were zoned properly. Everything was done, right? But they made life a living hell. And that's these are sort of the unknown factors where I think, to your point, like I think the thing that one of the things that concerns me is there's within this sort of um, podcast uh, ecosystem, there's this idea that it's a it's it's something that hey anybody could do, and 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 I think there's a lot of danger in that because. I absorbed some losses. For me, they weren't significant. But if somebody's putting a lot of money into this for themselves just to do it on their own, this is not this is not like, you know, buying a single family home, is it? Well, no. I mean, it's a, it's a service business um, with a real estate component. So it's probably right. 90% operations, 10% real estate. Um, now, obviously, your location matters. The design of your building, that all matters. But, I mean, it's all about, you know, who's your manager? Who's the care team? You know, um, you know what, what value does the owner add if they're going to be active in the business or passive? Those things all matter. Um, the, the not in my backyard sort of crowd, the NIMBY crowd, I think the really important thing to understand, and I, I'll tell you kind of a funny story. Uh, I got into a discussion with a a bunch of not in my backyard folks on next door, which is like a media, uh, like a neighborhood based social media platform. And um, I was very respectful. I'd, I'd gone down the rabbit hole of getting into arguments online. I just said, Hey, here's what we're doing. You know, please come check it out. Here's my phone number, that kind of thing. Engaged when I could. And I actually had a person call me based on that discussion where I was persona non grata very clearly move into our facility because she witnessed me have this conversation. And she's like, Hey, I didn't know you were in our neighborhood. And she moved her mom in. So for every person that's uh, aggravated that you're there, there's probably four or five that are happy you're there. They just don't vocalize their opinion. And so for me, that was really eye-opening to realize that there's an element of that to it. So that's probably your first question. I think my, chi- my, my, my point on that was that they never let it happen, right? I bought the house and they, they did everything in every possible way to obstruct my ability to move forward and uh, turn it into an assisted facility. So you said you were zoned for it. So if you I were zoned, zoned for it, how were they able to do that? Because it's not, it's, it, it, the reality is that they can make your life miserable. They can make you do traffic tests. They can make you do right. all sorts of stuff before you know it. You, was this in California? No, this was in uh, Illinois. Illinois, okay, got out, it. And not even Cook County. Got it. And um, so that that was a lesson for me. And believe me, I'm not saying 
that this is, you know, your model, whatever. You're you're a guy who does this, um, you know, for a living now. And my point is that my concern is this idea that anybody can go out and do this and it's not that hard. I found this to be extremely challenging and time-consuming, ultimately not a good deployment of capital um, for me personally as an operator. Um, But, okay, so let's talk about that boutique part too because that's something that you and I – um, you know, th- listen, I think it's a wonderful model. In fact, my, um, mother-in-law, uh, I moved her in, uh, my wife and I moved her into, uh, an Alzheimer's facility here in Santa Barbara, which is a small, it's probably maybe 12, maybe 10, maybe 10 okay. people. And it's fantastic. Okay. It's absolutely fantastic. And the owner is there all the time. And that's one of the reasons that makes it so damn fantastic, because this guy cares so much. But that's the exact same thing that I turn around and say, how is that scalable? How is that model scalable? So um, I think there's a few few things. So I think I'll maybe go back to your original question and tie it all together. So I do think the idea that anyone can do this is potentially potentially incorrect. Um, you know, I, I work for an organization that helps train people how to do this. And part of the reason why they hired me is I have a very different story um, from the gentleman that runs the organization. And he's progressive enough to say, Hey, you know, let's assemble four or five people that have different stories. I'll tell mine, you tell yours and people are going to resonate with who they resonate with. So I never tell anybody this is easy. In fact, uh, what I like about it is um, if you think about yourself, you're an accomplished guy. You couldn't get it done or didn't want to get it done. So what that means for me is that's that means there's more opportunity for me because I've I've got a barrier for entry between you and me. So that can be a very positive thing, right? So that's that's the one positive from that. The second component is is that, um, you know, imagine that you had to get that place open to survive, or imagine you had to get that place open to be successful. If that was if your identity of success or your identity of financial success was wrapped up in that event, you might have figured out a way to get it open. Um, ultimately you said for you that it wasn't a substantial loss. It was a loss that you didn't want to take, but you've got all these other streams. So there might be a case to be made that in your case, your, your why about getting that one facility open may not have been strong enough because there are speed bumps you're going to run into. I've dealt with neighborhoods that didn't want me there as well. And ultimately I've got to sit down with 50 neighbors and have a conversation with them. Um, we were able to effectively do that. The other thing that I would kind of say is I always, I always start with the, legal framework of where the facility is located is my first thing. And some cities have very clearly designed rules where your neighbors can't stop this. Um, so basically if you're allowed to do it by right versus, Hey, you got to send a letter to three, everybody within 300 feet, they get to weigh in. It's a much different process. Um, I've gone through commercial approval processes before I've seen them sail through with no opposition on five Oh, and I've seen them be very, very contentious. So a lot of it just depends on the neighborhood population. In my five different houses, I actually occasionally will put up illegal signs that have the name of the facility and the phone number. One neighborhood let it stay for one year before someone complained, and another neighborhood it lasted one day. So just think about how different those two neighbors are. So that's just a different – there's a lot of that that kind of goes into that process. But in terms of the scalability question, um, I think that that's awesome that the owner's there. Um, if I were selling against that owner, uh, one of the things I would say to the family is, that's great. What happens if the owner gets sick? What happens if this happens? And so I've always consciously tried to realize that if I make myself the center of the business, while it may be good for quality control and it may be good for certain things, 
I'm just one person. It's going to limit the number of people that I can help. And it's also going to limit my ability to scale as you described. So I hire people that have big hearts and have good backgrounds. So my corporate staff is, I'm very corporate staff heavy. So most care homes would have one or two positions, whereas I might have three or four positions. Um, you know, my, I'll hire a nurse, even though it's not required. You know, one of the guys that works for me has his master's in gerontology. So I try to hire really qualified people that also care a lot. And so, um, you know, I try to hire people that are going to do things without me having to ask. So I went to the facility today and I, there was a sign on the door and it said, Hey, we're changing the code. If you have the code, please be aware we're changing the code. Uh, please let us know if you have any questions. And the family asked me while we were doing that. I said, I don't know, but I'm sure they have a good reason. So the point is, is that I, I, I think it can absolutely be scaled. Um, one of the things we try to tell people is if you're going to do this, one care home is a lot of work. Uh, two care homes is twice the work. Three, four, five care homes, you can really hire a good team. So it's kind of the difference between you know, doing a multifamily complex that has 20 units or doing one that has 200 units. The scaling is going to be better the more revenue you have. And that's, that's really what I've tried to do. And that's why I've tried to grow so fast. Right. Um, let, let's, let's go back to sort of this boutique model. Can you describe it for people who don't know exactly what we're talking about there? Yeah, sure. So, you know, for, for me, boutique is always going to mean small. It's going to mean intimate. Um, it's going to be kind of a limited number of people. Um, and then also, too, I think it carries, I mean, you could have something that's small and intimate that's also kind of um, sort of lower end that caters to maybe like the lower middle or below. And so we really kind of go after kind of the upper middle or the lower uh, high end. Um, so our facilities are probably 20 to 20 to 40% more expensive than national average. Um, and we do that because we really want to make sure we provide a really high service. Um, I do think there's a huge need to solve the affordability problem in senior housing. Um, I don't know that I'm the guy to do that because I notice every time I'm doing stuff, I gravitate toward how to create revenue. And I'm not the guy that wants to look at how do I cut expenses. And I think the answer in solving the affordability crisis of senior housing is an expense driven one. So kind of what I think is going to happen on the affordability side is I think you're going to see a house like what you described with your with your uh, your mother-in-law. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe there'll be one person and a couple of robots uh, because that may solve some problems. Uh, you're always going to have to have a human element, um, but labor is a real challenge in our business. And so um, I, there's going to have to be, and, and maybe what you have in each room, there's a startup company. I don't think they're doing a very good job. I almost did some business with them, but I think the idea is sound. They're putting medical grade radar in, in, in residents' rooms and they can track breathing rates. They can track all kinds of things. And so they literally can, can feed this into an algorithm and predict like, hey, you're on track to get a urinary tract infection or you haven't eaten as much or haven't uh, had enough to drink today. And so I think you can do some things with technology to solve the uh, affordability piece. And I think that's fascinating. But from my perspective, I just want to be a guy that provides really high level service. And so I focus on you know $6,000 a bed, $6,500 a bed. Um, as opposed to the $3,500 a bed. Uh, I would love to uh, potentially have a separate brand that, that works on the affordability issue. But me personally, I'm way driven by how do I add value to these people and how do I charge more versus um, how do I save a dollar a day on food? That's just not, that's not who I am as a person. Right. Okay. So let's, um, let's kind of go back to this again in terms of um, an individual, because again, I'm trying to do two things here and I'm trying to address the idea because people have asked me whether, you know, what do you think about, you know, starting one of these things or whatever. And then there's the other part of it, which is, you know, having somebody like you who 
you know, you, you partner with or whatever. Sure. Um, let's talk about the, um, the, the pitfalls of the, you know, single family sure. home conversion aspect. So yeah, to your, to your question, um, in, in terms of, you know, I guess there's two pieces to it, basically, whether to start one of these. I, I don't think I would start with a goal of starting one. Um, I think that's the first thing. Mm-hmm. You may do one with the, so my approach and what I've always told everybody is I actually, when I went to the class to learn how to do this, there was a, a, a couple that was in the same class as me. And philosophically, they were probably pretty aligned with you. And they said, we're going to be hands off. Uh, we don't want to give ourselves a job. And I said, that's cool. I'm going to be hands-on. And I uh, said, so it'd be kind of funny, like we place a bet on how that goes. And we didn't place a bet, but we had a discussion about it. And the idea was, I said, listen, I want to, if you're a boxer, you spend your entire career trying not to get hit, but you also need to learn how to get punched. That's a very important part of being a boxer. But all the things you train and do is about avoiding getting punched and delivering punishment. But the bottom line is you can be great at that. And the first time you get punched, you just fall to the ground. You're not going to be a very good boxer. And so in assisted living, what I can promise you is you're going to get punched. It's just going to happen. There's pitfalls, there's challenges. In any business, though, that's not just assisted living. I think Uh, what I'm trying to say to you is is that the idea that this is just some asset that you, you buy or you acquire and you set and forget it is bullshit. It is. It's a business, and that's Agreed. the way it needs to be. I think it marketed. can get to that place. I, yeah. I do think that I do think that the the gap between A to Z or A to C or wherever you want to set the end game, I think it's definitely achievable. And there are people that have uh, pretty closed systems. I mean, I spend probably if I'm not trying to hire a key corporate person, I'm probably spending about five to ten hours a week in my business. So it's not it's not a super you know. It's probably spend about as much time as the average podcaster does doing their show and editing it. Right. Um, but I had to get to that point. It took a couple of years. So I think that that's the point where people have to realize that there is going to be a process to get there. Now, the solution to that potentially is maybe instead of doing one house, you go buy a portfolio. So you go buy five or 10 houses that are already operating. We've had some people do that. Um, you know, I bought three in the span of three months. Um, so that's understandable as a way to do it. And then the second part is, um, I think there is merit in, in finding someone, maybe not me, but someone like me that, that's figured this out and done it for a couple of years. You know, the average person that's run a successful assisted living business, a lot of times they're either nurses or social workers. They come, kind of come from a healthcare background. They don't necessarily understand construction and finance and all those things. So there's a real opportunity to take our two communities, right? The real estate syndication you know, community and then the healthcare community and kind of marry them together. You're obviously an example of that. Um, and I think there's some opportunity there. So I talk to people all the time that have, you know, had been running two, three care homes for 10 years and they want to grow and they don't know how. And so there may be an opportunity to, to marry those two things. One of the, let's talk about exits because this is one of the, um, one of the things that I, I kind of had a, a an issue with, with regard to the boutique side that I ultimately, um, just stopped because it was an issue that I could not kind of get it. So I personally, and again, this is just me, I don't, I don't really like to specifically get involved with business activity unless I feel like there's a way for me to exit with a significant multiple, just too much work, um, in general. And I've unfortunately been involved with way too much brick and mortar and have the scar tissue to prove it. But, um, Say you start something from scratch. You might be better off buying something, as you said, because at least you have a track record. But if you start something from scratch, you take a single-family home and you convert it 
um, and it doesn't work out, the thing doesn't work very well, what do you have left? You've got a single-family home converted into a facility, which at that point you can't really, I mean, you could, but the expense to turn it back into a single-family home would be very high. Again, I'm just trying to go through some of the thought processes that somebody probably ought to be thinking about if they start to do this kind of thing. So, so what what about that? I mean, do you do you see the the exits are very cons- that one of the aspects of the concern is failure and the lack of the uh, or inability to dispose of that asset as something that is a lot more liquid, which is a single family home. So address that. So a couple things. I mean, uh, I may not be the expert on how to convert an assisted living facility back to a single family home because I haven't had to do that yet. Right. Um, but I know I've thought about that for sure. I mean, when I did my first one, I said, okay, if we do this deal and it goes bad, then here's what we're going to have to do. Um, maybe I don't have to convert it. Maybe I just find a really large family that doesn't want a garage. Maybe you know, like family of ten, and great wants, house for you. Wants, wants one of those those showers where every you know you could fit like three people in, and, and you know what we call that in real estate? We call that future proofing. <laughs> it's future proof. Now you can age in place. <laughs> yeah. So I've thought about that, but right. ultimately, yeah. I mean, I think the goal is not to fail. I mean, I think if you do the deal right, there's enough margin here where even if you're, I mean, when I when I when I use the word margin. Um, what I tell people is that think about margin for error is what that means. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you have a 25 or 30% margin, if you take some lumps along the way, you can still have a profitable business. So maybe the house, instead of making $150,000 a year, maybe it makes 70. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a pretty good investment on a million dollars, for example. So I think that if you do it correctly and you, and you underwrite the deal in the right way and you're honest with yourself about what your strengths are as an entrepreneur, um, then I think you can, you can be very successful. As far as the exit multiple, I think the business itself is going to be worth between two and four X. I don't think it's as an individual house. I think that the house is making a hundred thousand dollars a year. You're going to be able to sell it for the real estate and then anywhere from two to four times what that, what that, what that business is making. The exception to that might be if you're selling 10 or 12 houses or 15 houses and the total income is, you know, say 1.5 million, 1.2 million, then you may be able to um, sell it for a multiple because you have enough beds to have scaling and things like that. There's some software things that can be brought to the table. There's some efficiencies at those numbers. Um, So I think that, I think that the exit, I think you're right in the sense that the exit is, um, it's not a rosy exit and you're never going to get like an apartment deal where you're going to sell it for you know, 20 times or 18 times net operating income, you know, that's not, that's not what's going to happen. But what you can have is you can have a thing that you can hold for 10 or 12 or 15 years. that just produces ridiculous cash flow. Um, and there, there's an element of investors um, that are less concerned about velocity than they are about simplicity. So if I do a deal, if I do an apartment deal and you think about all the apartment deals that have retraded in five years, right? They've been traded two or three times. Those investors have to then underwrite a new deal, find a new opportunity, put the money in, do a 1031, do a tenants in common. It's a lot of crap. And some people really want to set their investments and go. And so for some people, it's like, hey, if I can get a 10 to 15% cash on cash return and I don't have to think about it, I just get my check every month. There's an element of that that's attractive to them. And so I think this, this investment really has to be geared toward a certain type of investor. And again, it all really kind of comes down to the operator. I mean, I had no experience in the business when I started, and I think we've managed to manage to, to produce a really good operation. I think I had some unique skills that I brought to the table, uh, and I look for that in people that, that want to be successful. Um, you know, obviously, I look for people that have certain skills that are going to help be successful. And the number one skill is, can you sell? Can you market? Um, because ultimately, you're going to be able to find someone that's going to take good care of your residents. 
Um, but you've got to be able to articulate how you're unique and you've got to be able to go out into a marketplace and convince people to trust you and move into your home. And that's, that's probably sometimes the biggest challenge people face. Yeah. So, um, yeah, good. No, I, I think that's fair. I mean, I think two to four is kind of what I was thinking too. Sure. Um, I also think, well, who do you sell it to? You got to find somebody, you know, who's going to uh, want to pay that, who's going to want to take that over. Now, if you're talking about portfolio, who's buying a portfolio? Are you seeing a lot of examples of people buying 15, 20 of these things in a portfolio? Well, so a couple of things to think about. So assisted living started in 1983. Most people don't realize it's a very new industry, right? It's not that old of an industry. And, 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 and care homes have been around for a long, long time, right? Like several hundred years ago, if you got sick, you might go live with someone and they would take care of you, right? But um, in terms of professional care homes, they're only about 20 years old, you know, 20, 25 years old. So it's kind of a new industry in that regard. Um, what I will tell you is the medical community has very much made it clear. They think outcomes are better in smaller environments. That's a B uh, I think clients have told us because um, you'll go into a marketplace and you might see a place like Dallas. It's like 88% occupied and I might be a hundred percent occupied. Sure. Well, why am I 12 points over the number? It's because we have a unique selling proposition that people want. So that's kind of an element of it too. So here's what I think is going to happen. Um, you can look at other asset classes that happen in single family homes. I know we've had this discussion, you know, for a long time, big money never came into single family homes because they couldn't figure out how to manage it. You know, Warren Buffett famously said, I'd buy a hundred thousand houses. if I could figure out how to manage it. And then like two years later, you know, BlackRock or whatever went and bought a hundred thousand homes. So I think that there's that part of it. But the second piece is, is that you mentioned at the beginning of the show that, that Chase said, Hey, we know these big demographic changes are coming, but they're not here now. I think in 10 years, I think people are going to try to figure out how to play in this space. And um, so all of my projections are holding things for about 10 years because what's going to happen is about two or three years before the chickens come home to roost, uh, a lot of people with a lot of money are going to say, you know what, this is the business for us. And they're going to dump whatever asset they're in and they're going to find ways to interact with that product. Some people are going to go out and they're going to buy Brookdale and some people are going to go out and they're going to buy, you know, mid-level players. Some people are going to say, you know what? I want to get assets in Dallas. And I think if I go buy these 10 care homes in these amazing neighborhoods, I can create a return on capital that's attractive to me. And I have access to capital that is very cheap. I can put systems in place. I can put software and I can add some efficiencies to this operation so I can overpay for it. Right. And I've seen that in other businesses. I'll just, one, one thing I'll just say is the BlackRock comparison. I don't know that I think that that's a reasonable comparison given the fact that basically what they were doing was buying assets. They were not buying businesses. And I think that's an enormous difference. Well, remember, if you go back and look at the history of them, that they thought that, and then they re- figured out like, oh, crap, we can't manage these. So they had well, to go through that learning curve. Well, and so I agree. I, that was the mistake they made. They weren't buying assets. They were actually buying a business. Exactly, and they thought it was assets. But if they thought from the get-go they were buying businesses, they wouldn't have done it. So and, anyway, that's- I mean, you see consolidation in a lot of stuff. I mean, the funeral yeah. home business has been has consolidated. The pharmacy business has consolidated. So I, you know, there's been a lot of consolidation yeah. in in these uh, in these sort of demographic businesses. Obviously, pharmacies. Yeah. You've seen it a lot where CVS has acquired a lot of stuff. You've seen, you know, there almost there's almost no no such thing as an independently owned funeral home anymore because a lot of the big national players have gone in and kept the name up, but have purchased them. So I think right. there's been a lot of consolidation in these sort of demographic based businesses. We've seen a lot of that. Um, so, uh, curious now in terms of the, I, I was just reading your bio, you, um, got some big projects coming up now, right? I mean, are, so you shifting, are you shifting to the larger projects or how, how is that working? 
Tell me about <clears throat> so, uh, yes, uh, kind of. Um, I don't like, um, you know, 80 bed, 90 bed facilities all under one roof. So what I'm doing is I'm doing planned care home communities. So I believe in the model of care, having small, small houses with people in them. But I also love the scaling of a big building. And, and we talked about multiples earlier. So uh, whereas a care home might trade at two or four times business, you know, an assisted living facility might trade at an 8% cap rate, which is considerably higher than that. And so what I'm doing is I'm actually buying raw land and developing a neighborhood. And that neighborhood, instead of having families in it, has care homes. Each care home is independently licensed, independently addressed. Um, and so what it allows you to do is it allows you to have a, a luxury home, a, a basic home, um, a dementia home. If you want to get really cute, you can have a Parkinson's home or a home for people with diabetes. You can have sub demographics, like you can maybe have a house that's kosher. You know, it doesn't matter what the whole point is. You can have, you can cater to what the community tells you it needs. And so we really like those projects because it's kind of the marrying of large projects, which have instant scale, but also the outcomes that are better in care homes. So similar to your, you know, if you think about your experience with your mother-in-law in Santa Barbara, what if the house next door, uh, instead of being a dementia care facility, was an assisted living facility? She could start there and then graduate to the memory care facility. So that's that's the angle that we're coming from. So I agree with you. For me, the care home business never was the end game. It was the education to get to the end game. Yeah. Um, I don't know that I'll ever be interested in buying a 100 or 200 bed facility that is just like everybody else. One of the ways that I might consider doing that would be just if we had better ratios. So if we basically underwrote the deal to have the same types of ratios of caregivers to residents that I have in my existing business, then maybe I would consider it. Um, but I think there's some real challenges for people to walk down a hundred yard hallways and eat with 40 or 50 people. And, and there's just a lot of, you know, there's some people who don't want to be around a hundred people. It's just the fact, you know, there's a lot of people that just don't want to spend their day with 40 other people. Yeah. And so these smaller environments offer something that's very powerful in the marketplace. The outcomes are better. Um, and so we've kind of married the two concepts together uh, to allow us to um, solve your concerns and at the same time, not sacrifice quality and outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, definitely sounds, um, I think probably more what I would uh, consider, you know, something that, uh, you know, probably has a, a greater uh, future in terms of valuation, et cetera. Now, um, they're doing something well, like that, by the way. And there's a model in somewhere in Scandinavia, isn't there something like uh, yeah. basically having a neighborhood like this or something? Yeah, there's, I mean, uh, Holland is really kind of on the cutting edge yeah. of uh, dementia care. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff that comes, comes there. Yeah, they do a lot of interesting stuff over there. Um, this is an element of that. Um, but what it really is, is, um, it's, there's a ton, there's a ton of companies that are doing this now. Um, what I would suggest to you is, is that I don't think they started at the organic level of the business that I did because they, they don't understand what makes their business work. You ever see someone try to replicate something they don't really understand and they just kind of mess up some core pieces. Yeah. So a few things we do that are kind of different. Number one, our houses are architecturally designed to not have long hallways. Um, the cheapest thing you can do is build a rectangle, right? Run a hallway down and have a door, 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 door. But at a certain point, it doesn't matter if it's small. It's when you're in it, it still feels like you're in an institution, still feels like you're in a big building, just kind of shrunk. So we avoid that. The second thing is, is that uh, most of the site plans that I've seen other people do is they put the parking in the center and the houses face each other. So you kind of feel like you're in an office park. It doesn't feel like a neighborhood. So what we do is we have the houses back up to each other like a traditional neighborhood would. The houses face out and we run the road in a circle around them. So when you drive up, it looks like a regular neighborhood. 
The other thing we kind of do that's a little bit different is we have an independent sales and leasing center. So when you pull up, the first thing you see is you see an opportunity to pull in, go have a conversation. So you're not in an assisted living facility or a dementia care facility talking about mom or dad. You're in a professional setting to have a conversation, get questions answered. And then after we answer questions, get a feel for what you need, then we take you to the appropriate house. And if you've ever tried to tour an assisted living facility, it can be kind of chaotic. Um, and especially on these campuses where people might be all over campus, it can be real challenging. Like, yeah, go down to building five, ask for Karen. It, it, the tour process is kind of uh, difficult. And so we've really tried to hone in the fact that people want to get their questions answered. They want to be heard. And they don't necessarily want to run all over campus to try to find the tour person. And so we've kind of created a, you know, and it's a heavy expense. You know, you're going to spend, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars to build that building. But at the end of the day, it makes your tour process so much better. It makes, the, makes your success ratio on tours so much better. It makes your ability to connect with the client so much higher that we think it's a no-brainer. So that's, that's the kind of stuff that we're doing that's a little differently than that's, that's out there in the marketplace. Sounds good, man. Well, good luck with that. It sounds like sort of a better, um, you know, sort of a best of both worlds uh, type approach. Well, that. I had to, I had to do the thing, the first thing originally to be able to do this. Yeah. I would, if I tried to do this as my first project, the odds are I would make some of the same mistakes. And so, yeah, no, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. I don't think that you're in, you're, you're incorrect with your assessment. I just think at a certain point I might assign a different value to the education. I might assign a different value to the process, right. um, that, the, that the pain that I've undergone learning these lessons is, is the reason why I'll be successful in the bigger projects. Right. Well, uh, you know, I, I hear you're a big fan of Rosé. So, you know, when, when you uh, open up, make sure I, I know and I'll come and, and bring you a bottle of nice Rosé. Absolutely. <laughs> so how can we get a hold of you? Uh, where, what's, what's the website? What's, what's the information? Yeah, so uh, our website is, the company's called Sage Oak Assisted Living and Memory Care. So the website is The Sage Oak, so T-H-E-S-A-G-E-O-A-K.com. And my email address is low, L-O-E, at thesageoak.com. And just to, to prime the pump a little bit, you know, people can reach out for anything. So if you're in Kansas and you're looking for a place for your mom and you need advice, feel free to call me. I'll try to connect you with the provider I have there. You know, if you're interested in more in the investment avenue, please let me know. And and if you want to learn more about how to do this, then I can connect you with some resources there too. So I try to make myself available in a lot of different capacities if I can. Sounds good, Lo. Thanks for being a Wealth Formula Podcast. Thanks, Doc. We'll be right back. Now, welcome back to the show, everyone. Obviously, uh, you know, I was not easy on Lo, and he was a really good sport about it. Um, I get a lot of people asking me about this stuff, you know, this sort of, you know, hey, Buck, should I invest in this, you know, single, you know, these single family home conversions into, uh, into uh, care facilities and, and should I invest in these with somebody else? Well, I just wanted to make sure that before you do this, you had some other, you know, that you really beat this thing up and you thought about it before you do it because it's not that easy. But anyway, hope you enjoyed that uh, that conversation. I think uh, at the very least, you've probably given you some idea on which way you want to head when it comes to that that type of investing. Now, uh, these kinds of conversations, by the way, if you enjoy them, these are the kinds of things you know that we beat up on in Wealth Formula Network. So again, if you're interested in that, check that out, wealthformularoadmap.com. Hopefully, you will sign up for our live event in Dallas, September 27th, 28th. And check that out at wealthformulaevents.com. We're limited to 100 people. So if you want to come, you got to move quickly. And that's it for me this week. 
on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.